Hello everyone and welcome back to Identity Architects, the podcast that spotlights individuals who are changing the way that data is used to deliver richer customer experiences. I'm your host Ben Cicchetti and for this episode our SVP of Sales for Northern Europe and Italy, Stu Coleman, had the pleasure of chatting with Mary Keen Dawson, business growth consultant at Kiln, the digital transformation agency whose clients include Time Out, LX Collection and Connected. Stu and Mary have a fascinating discussion, touching on data privacy, regulation, distributed ledger technology, and much, much more. Before I hand it over to Stu and Mary, just a reminder to hit that subscribe button so you know when the next episode of Identity Architects lands. But without any further delay, here's Stu and Mary. Hello everyone, welcome back to Identity Architects. I'm really pleased this week to uh, welcome Mary Keen Dawson, one of uh, industries, our industry's uh, gems, I'd call her. Uh, she's got a wealth of knowledge and experience across uh, a full range of um, brands and media owners and agencies. Um, she's an absolute delight to talk to, and normally when we talk, it goes on for hours and we go off on random subjects. So I'm going to try very hard today to kind of keep us on track a little bit. Um, we've got some really interesting questions for her. We're going to dive into some specific knowledge she has around some stuff that I think you're all going to find interesting. Um, normal format, we're going to uh, start with some quick fire questions and try and learn a little bit about uh, Mary and her history. And then we're going to get into some detailed questions around some of the really interesting subjects. Um, I'm going to try and talk as little as I possibly can because she's definitely the interesting one. Um, so I'm going to hand it over immediately to Mary with, hi, Mary, how are you? Hello, Stuart. I am really well. Thank you very much. And uh, what a great uh, opportunity to address some Burning issues uh, on the InfoSum podcast. Thank Brilliant. you for inviting me. No, it's definitely our pleasure. So, like I said, we're going to start with some quick fire questions and just uh, give the uh, listeners a little bit of history about you and your experiences and uh, some fun questions about 10 year olds and how you explain things to them that we'll get into. Um, so, let's start with um, what was your earliest memory of advertising and marketing? My very earliest memory of advertising and marketing was when I was 12 and I got a Saturday job in a newsagent's. And I used to have to stack all the magazines on to the gondola ends. And I was fascinated by this, this medium. I mean, it was glossy magazines like Vogue and Tatler and, you know, The Economist and all these other things. And I worked out from looking at them that actually there was this kind of weird stuff about people buying for them, but also there was this advertising inside them. And so that was my very first, uh, very first experience of advertising. And of course that led me into eventually into my very first job, which was selling advertising at the observer. Something very, um, I think you would use the word glamorous, but something very kind of, uh, um, bewitching about kind of print advertising and yeah. and you know the, the rich paper and the color and everything else. It's uh, yeah, I, I kind of share that that kind of feeling. For me, it was TV advertising, just hooked yep. on on TV ads and strange. It never the TV advertising, you know, just never really had the impact that maybe it was because everybody watched the BBC in my house. I don't know, but I just loved the smell of print and I loved the smell of Sunday supplements. And they were printed by things called gravure presses in those days. Yep. And the gravure presses were huge and you had to have massive print runs on them for them to make any economic sense. And when I was working at the Observer, they had presses actually in the building. And you st- on a Thursday evening when you were leaving work, that was when the presses rolled. And literally the thunder, the, the sound of these presses going... It was absolutely the work. The, the 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 you know the building shook. You yep. know around the the streets around it would shake, and we would be in the this pub on Cockpit Street, which um, I don't even know if it's still there, but it was you know it was a historical kind of part of town. I mean, it was literally Fleet Street. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was a it was a different time. Yep. So much has changed since then. Definitely, and we're going to talk a bit about that as we go through. But obviously, your first job, as you've mentioned, was Observer. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. What was what was uh, what was what was it like? What did it feel like? What did you do? Well, I I was a very unusual in the sense that I left university with, with a baby. <laughs> well, I mean, I actually left university uh, with the first, and then I had a baby three months later. <laughs> and um, I I didn't tell him when I had a kid, and I desperately needed a job because I I, I was uh, a single mum and. 
I went, a friend of mine who worked for the Express actually told me about, brought an NRS, copy of NRS and a copy of TGI to the pub and we had a drink and he explained to me how the currency of advertising sales worked. And I applied to both the Observer and the Guardian for graduate trainee jobs. And I got interviewed by Caroline McFarland, as she was then, um, who tried to get me to sell her an ashtray. And And then I went to the Observer and I actually got interviewed in the offices at the Observer. And I was interviewed by a woman called Rona Drummond. And she was new to the job. and she, I told her I'd been for the interview at The Guardian. And um, she said, if I offer you the job, will you join us if I give you semi-display so you don't have to go through classified training? <laughs> I had no idea what she was talking about. That's the classic route, though, isn't classified display? I just thought, this sounds better. <laughs> so she said, you've got three months. And so I went into The, gar- into the Observer um, and started selling semi-display and then very quickly moved to display. And in those days, you literally walked around agencies, sat in the reception area, you know, and and waited until the planners would see you because it was really very different. I mean, in terms of the the pre-Zenith. And so you sold to, to planners and the planners were making decisions about what medium would be used, you know, like, would it be a combination of television out of home and, and press or, you know, or would it be radio or whatever? And so you, you were really up against all the different media, not simply the other color, uh, color yeah. supplements. Yeah. So it was a, it was, and that was actually incredibly good for education, you know, for understanding the, the whole media mix and understanding what the challenges were for, agencies and clients and obviously us as as people who were you know it was a quite a scientific way of selling as well everything was based on demographic data and so on and so forth and you pitched against the barb data and you pitched against the jigwa data and so on and so forth so you got a very so you could basically quite easily move from sunday sunday press to or newspapers sorry to tv or radio or whatever i mean it was a it was very easy to move and move across media which a lot of people did yeah absolutely the the days of 10 uh 10 doubles and color page spreads and all that fun stuff see EPS's love First right-hand page. <laughs> Half the industry won't have a clue what we're talking about, but it really is, you know, it's the foundation. And you're, you're absolutely right that, that it gives you that kind of broad knowledge of how the ecosystem works. And that's, that's you know, uh, I'm sure paid dividends. But it was also, I mean, the, the, the whole industry was much smaller, okay? Yep. And the characters in the industry <laughs> yep. were truly amazing. I mean, there was a woman who worked at the Observer and um, wherever she is, hello, Mary G. Um, and she used to come into the office, she smoked like a chimney and she was Irish like myself. And um, she'd come in and, and she'd say, you know, right, 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 give me the order books, give me the order books. I'm off now, I'm off to the pub and I've just got 10 meetings and they're starting at 11 and I'll be there till five. back. <laughs> We'll have the whole. We'll have the whole issue of next Sunday's completely booked out. And true to her word, she would be in back by five o'clock with all you know the the, the triple you know carbon paper order yep. forms yep. and you know like she was a fantastic saleswoman and a brilliant negotiator. It, it, interestingly enough, I think it was a great time to be a young woman in media. Because media started to become, you know, incre- a revolution was happening in media because of technology. Yeah. And it really genuinely, if, if you were good at what you did, you did really well. Yeah. And I was, uh, you know, people like Rita Lewis, who started off in ourselves at uh, EMAP, um, and she landed up going on to become, you know, uh, hugely successful within EMAP. Uh, and I mean, you know, there were loads of us that just kind of like were young women who could sell or could, you know, have, were very creative. My own best friend from school, Maura Prunty, she was the youngest ever editor at EMAP and she edited Just 17 and more and Just Looks and yep. all sorts of other things. Brilliant. And, you know, both creatively and commercially, women really started to make it an impact during the, that time. Yeah, brilliant. And as it should be, and, and you know, um, Many of them have gone to great success, which is brilliant to kind of see and and, and, uh, and be part of. 
Um, and, and you too, you, you know, you, you've had a stellar career, and we're, we're going to hopefully see some, some, uh, or hear about some interesting uh, insights and experiences that you've had as a result of that career as we move through the questions. But looking back now, knowing the things that you know now, what would you say to yourself back then? What, what's kind of the one thing that you would say to to young Mary is you know, what to do, what not to do, what to focus on? I did not know Mary when I was in um, when I you know when I was at, at that stage in my career. And if I had known me at that time, I think I would have had a very different experience. But I was lucky because I I landed up going into business, new business development in contract publishing. And uh, literally, it was a shoebox we were working out of. I mean, it, I literally, it was a broom cupboard at the back of a building. Yep. You know, that, I mean, it was crazy. And somehow I managed and I had a great I worked with a really great lady called Daphne Bornarton who was like my assistant and somehow we blagged our way into Ford <laughs> and um I was up against Redwood Publishing who I'd worked for previously and I knew Mike Potter was just like you know the sort of charm smooth talking Ferrari driving you know petrol head you know and I knew that this was going to be really tough up against that, that those guys because they would just walk in and start talking, you know, mechanics and, you know, VIN numbers, which is all, you know, I, I subsequently learned all about that stuff. And um, I knew that if I was going to win the account, I would really have to make, impress and impress in a big way. And I was so fortunate. I met a guy called Sir Ian McAllister, who was chairman of Fall of Britain. And I was in a room with Ogilvy and uh, Wonder Mankato Johnson, as they were then known. And I said, and he said, if anyone has come here to talk to me about customer magazines, they can off. <laughs> and I just see all of these big and wonderful people sort of backwheeling and just go, oh, no, we're not here to talk about customer magazines. No, because they're all scared of him because he was such a big client. And I suddenly saw six months of my life disintegrating, you know, and all the work. And I just ran around the desk and I looked at him and I said, Serian, if I wanted to know how to sell cars, you would be the person I would speak to. And if I asked you, I'm sure you'd give me five minutes and tell me about it. I said, so give me five minutes. And he said, okay, you've got five minutes. And I, two hours later, I walked out of there with the business. And he became, he became like this massive supporter of mine. I mean, he was an evangelical Christian. I mean, he was like, you know, he was 60. He must have been 60 when, when I worked for him. He seemed like he was 60 anyway. And he was amazing. And he was such an incredible, he just was like, we've got to change and we've got to become more female. I mean, he was so ahead of the curve, yeah. Yeah. you know. And um, he put me on something called the Vehicle Launch Committee. And so I was I was the very first woman to be on a Vehicle, vehicle Launch Committee uh, that Ford, you know, Ford, they'd never had a woman on one of them before, uh, and uh, in the UK, that yep. is. Yep. And, um, I mean, it was an incredible experience. And, you know, to go to be from, like, literally a back room, you know, broom cupboard to, you know, front of house, we built the magazine out, and it became, it was rolled out pretty much everywhere in the world. So it was an incredible success and an incredible experience. And it, but I mean, if I, had, I always say to myself, you know, Mary somehow knew she had to ask for that five minutes. And I think that that was my, you know, if I was, so therefore I would say to her, well done. Yep, yep, absolutely. <laughs> you, know, yep. You, you, you might have like surprised and upset everybody else because you, but you got the business and that was kind of like, you know, your job. Exactly, and yeah. did a good job. Being brave, being willing to put yourself out there. Absolutely. I think that's, uh, um as an outsider looking in, I think that's probably stuck with you throughout your career, that willingness to take a risk and try something new and put yourself out there. I think, uh, uh, no, I, I certainly look at you with admiration as to, to um, the way that, that you've navigated through your career and the exciting things you've done. So I think that's maybe that stayed with you throughout your career. Um, but rolling all the way forward, because that's no, it's, it's, it's great to have that history and it's a really strong foundation for you. Um, one of things that you've done that's that's very progressive recently is, is involved with blockchain and we're going to talk a bit, a bit about that as we go through but i'm going to ask you the really difficult question which is um for our viewers out there who who may know a little bit about blockchain or don't we're going to treat them as uh, as a uh, kind of 10 year old um how would you explain blockchain to a 10 year old well i'm going to say that i actually uh knew about this question in advance very kindly warned me about it 
And I did ask a couple of my male colleagues about this and they came back and gave me very convoluted explanations about nodes, proof of work, proof of stake, uh, proof of uh, all the proofs, yep. you know, <laughs> and a long list of proofs. And then the thing about encoding and double ledgers and, uh, and authorities and, and whatever. And uh, I kept on saying, but this is for a 10-year-old. So this morning, I rang up my friend, Jenny Stanley, who's absolutely brilliant. And I said, how would you explain blockchain to a 10-year-old, Jen? And she just said to me, blockchain is a system of recording a piece of information in a way that makes it extremely difficult or impossible to lie, cheat, hack, or play the system. Essentially, a blockchain is a digital record of the same action that's verified independently in several different places, so it becomes the truth. Very good. Even I understand it now. <laughs> Brilliant. So what I want to say to you is this, right? <laughs> Dissemination of information and complexity, ask a woman. <laughs> My wife says the same thing, and she's always right. So, <laughs> but no, I completely agree. I, I think the other the other thing about that is, um, and maybe we'll touch on this when we get a bit deeper in some of the other questions. But as in, particularly in modern our tech industry, in our tech industry, we like to make things complicated because we like it to make has them always sound been cool. so. Oh, ex exactly. But but it's it's. I'm, I'm a big fan, and, and um, I, I like that explanation for, for that very reason, which is making it simple makes it accessible. You know, it doesn't matter how, it matters yeah. why. And I, I think that's a really important part of it. But but I think, you know, we, we, it has always been thus. I yeah. mean, back in the day, you would go to the printers and you would sit there while the printer, you know, while the prints were rolling, okay, the print, the print presses were rolling, and the printers would speak in Esperanto. They would speak in a language which was full of acronyms and phraseology that nobody could understand because <laughs> it was really, it was their language. And it, it allowed them to retain this, this aura of expertise and knowledge that was, you know, because you didn't understand what they were speaking about, you couldn't break through. Yeah. And that stuff has always irritated me deeply because I think that the best way to be is the smartest idiot in the room and you ask those kind of the questions that you need to ask which is what does that mean in English please yep. because I you know this kind of like over engineering stuff and, com and making things really complicated is actually a recipe to also make things um obfuscated yep. okay and that results in a lack of transparency. <laughs> you know where this is headed, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> That's been a bit of a problem in our industry. <laughs> yeah, maybe a little bit. <laughs> Good. Right. A couple more quick, quick five questions, then we'll jump into the uh, into the um, more kind of detailed ones. So um, when you're lying there at night and you can't go to sleep, what's the thing that's keeping you awake? You know, I sleep really well. <laughs> but... Uh, there have been occasions in my life when I have uh, been, you know, I haven't been able to sleep because I've realized that I've been working in environments where, you know, I'm not liked or I'm not, I'm not obeying, you know, the country club rule book that nobody's ever seen. And, and no one's explained to me why. And there's that kind of friction that can be very hurtful. And I think that, you know, there's a kind of, you know, if you're a successful woman in business, often you are perceived to be as hard as nails and, you know, covered in, a, you know, emotionally, you can, you, you know, you're just not there at all. You're not present. And nothing could be further from the truth. You know, in my particular experience, I think that I care, you know, I've always cared deeply about the business, but also the people. And uh, that's why I've never been particularly good at hatchet jobs um because it's just too it's too this is about real humans right and it impacts on them so i think that those things have kept me awake at night for sure um but right now i mean i'm working with um i'm working with ben williams and, and a guy called mark Stanton bennett and you know they're just fantastic they're just great good human beings yeah. and you know, we just sort out any disagreements we might have, like very easily, just by being adults. You know, there's no, there's no, there's no, there's no, there's no toxicity. It's just not like that. Yeah. You know, we're all very clear about 
wanting to do the best thing for our clients that's it yeah. you know and if we're not doing that's what if you you know that's your bar then that's what you should be doing and anything that's outside of that is actually just you know noise yeah. and you want just to get rid of distraction it. gets in the way yeah. there's no need for it I, I absolutely agree um so the dovetail to that what what kind of motivates you in the morning what what gets you uh gets you going doing podcasts <laughs> speaking to me yes i know thank speaking you very much you, <laughs> so genuine all right <laughs> absolutely love uh i still love the the business you know yeah. and i still um i still love uh clients and, and solving clients problems i mean i know that might sound really basic but you know at this stage i think that that's what I'm interested in. Otherwise, I'm, I'm I'm certainly not interested in any of the other nonsense. Yeah. I'm, you know, that that's that stuff. Thank you, but no, thank yeah. you. Really, really, only interested in helping. And I must say, all oh, this is important. Is you know, I my job is to serve, right? And I think that that's what I hopefully do by helping where I can and advising when I where I can. And also, you know, pointing out the elephant in the room where I can. Yeah, yeah and sometimes that's what's needed is is some reality and some honesty and yes. some kind of genuine view. So, you know, I, I think it's a great uh, it's a great thing to be motivated about. Yeah, totally. And I am still motivated. I mean, you know, that's that's what I am excited about. I am also excited by the, the young people and, the, you know, the, the young people that I'm involved with. You know, I, I'm a trustee of a charity called Digi Learning, which is founded by Lisa Goodchild and Sarah Wilson, who are two digital, you know, digirati who come from an, a council estate in Peckham. And uh, they're both, their story is incredible. And um, really, truly, they are, you know, they, they absolutely do what they say they're going to do. And that's they help young and underprivileged and people who come from backgrounds where, you know, no one ever worked in advertising or wrote for the newspapers or had any of that experience or made radio programs unless, they were, you know, unless someone had been shot, you know, and then they'd be on the news. They are opening the door to digital uh, jobs in, in, in advertising, media and technology to young people who, you know, th these are the Stormsies of the future Stormsies of our and the future Adele's of our industry. And we have to do as much as we possibly can to, you know, to basically, and it's got to be done at grassroots, you know. So I think that that's, that's one of the most exciting, I mean, I met this fabulous young woman called Narita a few weeks ago. I went and did a talk at um, MIQ and she was there and she was on an internship or she was there as a, you know, uh, observe, observing. And I started talking to her and I mean, she is, was, well, she is, super smart but she you know she's a she's a refugee from somalia right and uh but she really wanted to get into the business you yep. know and i was like well how can i help you how can we help you yep. and you know she's now got a great job at um uh at one of the research uh, agencies for gen z which is called imagine and i mean you know they they they're opening their doors to lots of people from various different backgrounds and i mean this is not against you know anybody it's not against me it's not against you it's not against our mates in the industry what it is is about you know we have a, a, a duty i think to try and make society better and we're only going to do that by reflecting the consumers that we serve Absolutely. so let's make sure that we've got the, those people working in enough organizations absolutely if any industry should reflect um society it's, it's advertising because advertising talks to society it just it just makes sense Good. Right. Final quick fire. And we've, we've spent ages on quick fire, so they're not so quick, but hey, um, what is the song soundtrack of your life? Uh, it's by the Pogues and it's called uh, You're My London Girl. Um, it's a great track uh, by the Pogues. You can dance to it if you want. And the reason why it's the song of my soundtrack of my life is that I was actually, you know, I'm, I'm from an Irish background, but London has always been my home of homes, although I've lived in China and I've also lived in the States a lot. But I come back, I always, you know, will always have a home in London, yeah. no matter if I have a house in Ireland or not, yeah. I will always have a home in London because I just, London is such an exciting and dynamic place and I love it. I just absolutely love it. So that's the soundtrack of my life. Fabulous. Thank you. And thank you for your honesty. And it's um it's it's great to hear. Um 
I love the passion. I love the causes. I think it's great. So thank you for uh, for being very open with us. Right, we're going to jump into some more detailed questions, and we're going to probably focus a lot on blockchain, just because um, I think relatively uniquely in the industry, you've had some fairly deep experience in in what could blockchain mean in the ad industry. Um, generally, when people think about the general population, you say the word blockchain, people think Bitcoin, they think cryptocurrency, etc. Um, but as you know, and, and as uh, numerous people in the industry kind of uh, are looking to, to kind of um, uh, create opportunities with, it can do so much more. It's you know, there, there, there's lots of applications. So, what do you think the role of blockchain is in the industry when thinking about things like the replacement for the third party cookie, or to do with measurement, or to do with the application of data, or, or whatever? Just just your kind of general view of where do you think it sits. Well, I mean, you know, for me, distributed ledger technology, which is really what... That's a nice way of putting it. You know, that's what we're talking about yeah. here. And unfortunately, you know, blockchain, and there's nothing wrong with the with the, with the the word blockchain as, as it stands, but because exactly you say that, you know, it immediately, you know, it's connected in most people's minds with crypto. Mm. And I mean, I, I'm really sorry, you know, like I invested in Ethereum and, you know, just to see what would happen. And I bought NFTs because I wanted to go through the process so I could actually be able to talk about it. But do I think that that's going to be my pension? <laughs> the answer is no. Now, I know that, you know, we've all got, you know, like a story, all right, about an outlier who somehow, you know, got in early and made millions and all the rest of it. And, you know, well done you. But ultimately, you know, that we're talking about something that, is essentially a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's what it is. And it's a very, very, you know, it's a very successful one for a lot of people. But fundamentally, I think what we're seeing now, and I, I think the latest news about Ethereum is really encouraging because um, mining is, I know this is going a little bit off point, but I want to make these points because I think they are very relevant to what the future of DLT, distributed ledger technology, is to our industry is because, you know, the fact that mining um, is no, you know, hopefully will no longer be the main way that we um, we mint coins and crypto and also Ethereum and its ilk and its, you know, and its fellow travelers, yep. those tokens have uses, okay, which are very important to the success of and the, and the adoption of DLT as um you know broadly within the uh the, the wider ecosystem and the wider economy and i think we'll get to a point i would hope within the next 10 years where no one's even going to start you know like going on about oh it's blockchain because it'll just be what is the basis of the tech and i think that you know i was part of a, a team that um launched a business called truth uh a few years ago and truth side the idea of truth was to Provide, bring transparency um, and visibility to the programmatic pathways. And uh, two things about it. First of all, there, there was a problem, and there is a problem, which is now being overcome very successfully with latency yep. um, and the utilization of proof of work and proof of stake, um, you know, and, and the speed at which you're able to actually, uh, you know, to, to conduct transactions. Uh, that you know meant that uh, utilizing it at the time, which is now five or six years ago, was just not possible. The second problem was that that you know fundamentally, people wanted to raise money utilizing tokens, yep. and rather than you know crowd crowdfunding or you know traditional route of taking money uh, from investors, and yep. therefore the risk you know people who are in the business of taking risks. And I had an issue with that because for me, um, you know, the whole token, the, the, the kind of token bubble that was going on. And that's that's what, you know, really has held back, I think, uh, those two those two issues, one technical and one ethical, you could argue, uh, have really held back, I think, uh, blockchain and DLT. However, what we are now seeing, and I think it's really interesting, and I'm not giving your your technologies a plug, but I am giving you a plug, you know, that there now there is an adoption of distributed ledger technologies at where it is appropriate. And it's certainly appropriate when we are talking about the anonymization of data and the management of the anonymization of data and how we can use um, DLT in that way, I think is really powerful. And it's, it gives a lot of assurance, I think, to 
clients, brands, and to the consumer that they're, you know, and it's a math and it's where the math comes in, right? Yep. Where there's really super smart mathematical equations, um, which, you know, all come out of, um, you know, the way that Bitcoin was originally, you know, that Bitcoin and blockchain was originally created. So the good stuff is it, that's within DLT um, is really powerful. And I think now we're seeing that the carbon, uh, you know, the carbon footprint problem is being addressed. Um, and thirdly, I think, and this is where I think we, we're going to see the, the major, we're now seeing the emergence of genuinely really powerful platforms um, emerging that can drive programmatic um, and do not have the latency problems. And that's, you know, been a fix that's really come out of the city because the city over the last five years has really had to address distributed ledger technology for its own benefits. And we've been able as an, as an industry to be able to piggyback on that in the same way that we did with programmatic. And prior to that, when it was search and we could use, um, you know, the, the stock picking algorithms that actually drove, you know, landed up becoming efficient frontier and Marin and Kenshu and the rest is history, you know? Yep. So you can always find a route <laughs> when you result as me, mate, <laughs> you always find a route back. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a, a strong argument to say that um, programmatics uh, kind of grandfather is high frequency trading, isn't it? It's, you know, it's similar principle, similar approach, isn't it? It's, it, it is its grandfather. I'd say it's, I'd say it's its grandmother, actually, but there you go. <laughs> right, roll with it. Grandparents. Let's go with grandparents. Grandparents. Um, and hearing you say that, I mean, uh, um, uh, I, I find blockchain and DLT and, and cryptocurrency a fascinating subject. I, you know, I, I bounce between good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. But mm. somebody said to me a long time ago, um, uh, blockchain's the answer. What's the question? <laughs> Um, and I, I think for quite, for quite some time, and, and just reflecting on what you're saying, I think for quite some time um, we were trying to find solutions with, for blockchain to answer because we just wanted to, we just wanted to invest in the technology. This is cool. Let's find let's find something we can use it for. Um, and just reflecting on what you said right at the start about um, you know going back to kind of the why is what really matters and you know, what problem mm. am I actually solving. Um, I wonder whether some of the hesitations, some of the negativity that exists around it, or some of the time it's taken to get to a point where we're starting to see really interesting outcomes, is we've we were focused too much on the this is really cool tech rather than what problems actually solving, what's the value that's created, what's the why of this. Well, I think the thing about uh, technology debates, in my experience, and I've been in a few. Um, you know, I can remember arguing about the fax machine. So. <laughs> Should we have one or not? <laughs> the worst ones is when your fo- your phone went because someone's faxed your phone instead of the fax in the fax machine. You get this kind of tone down your ear. And that was a landline <laughs> phone. But... <laughs> yeah, for the, for the old one, uh, for the young ones amongst you, yeah. Uh, but I think that one of the interesting things is people can be get. It is interesting how passionate people are to take their their, their you know they put their. They put their stake in the ground, and that's their stake. Yep. And they'll tell you. I mean, recent, you know, recently I was presenting at a Beam and Beyond conference, and I was on talking about how to how to win business during a time of economic downturn. And I talked about Web three point zero, you know, and I had a big a big uh, slide on the a big screen projected, you know, and there was a huge puff of smoke on the slide. And I was like, the next stage of vaporware is upon us. Yeah. And I mean, the reaction I got from the crowd was really funny because there was some people go, yes, yes, so right. Metaverse doesn't exist. What a load of nonsense. And then the other side of the room, you know, everyone was standing up and kind of going, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, it's here already. And as my lovely colleague Ben Williams would say, we're in the age of Web 2.5. And I think that's actually... <laughs> You know, like that's the middle ground. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that's a problem, you know, is that that we don't have middle ground in the way we used to. Yep. Where we debate about stuff, and yep. we actually say, "So, what is this thing? You know, and what does it mean? And how?" And we don't have consensus. And unfortunately, and you know, this is a challenge for the industry. A lot of our associations, and God, do we have a lot of them. <laughs> I've been a member of most of them, yeah. <laughs> is that, you know, often, you know, the subcommittees and the yeah. specialist committees and that, you know, will discuss all this stuff. And then it kind of get, you know, they, they build a report out 
but it gets lost, you know. We don't have a position as an industry about what we think is good practice. And, you know, usually, and, and unfortunately, and this isn't against Google or anybody, but, you know, it ends up with Google set best practice. And I definitely don't think that's healthy at all, you know, because they're, and, and you know, best practice needs to be set by the industry, yeah. you know. Yeah. And there needs to be more consensus around what is good practice and what is bad practice. And I think technologies, you know, it's really interesting now how, you know, uh, Group M are reorganizing themselves into these sort of, into what essentially are, you know, tech clusters, you know, that are, are relevant to particular sectors of, um, you know, channels and and, and, uh, and sectors within uh, the, the media mix yep. outside, you know, and, and as the media mix is becoming more and more diverse, then, you know, and more complex, then, you know, they're, they're much more match fit, if you like, because they have got this technology at the heart of, of these various clusters that they're building, that reorganization. But it's taken a long time for them to get there, right? Yeah. And, you know, I think that the division, and of course, that, that's just part of the way that, you know, as you as the the business has gone from being that village around Fleet Street uh, or television studios or the BBC and commercial radio, you know, on a, on a boat up the canal. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, now it's global, right? And it's actually called global, yep. you know, and it's everything because yep. it's, it's everything. You know, it, um, that's one of the things we've come this, you know, this consolidation has led to these huge, you know, massive multi-billion uh, dollar businesses that are vast, have geographic, uh, you know, tentacles everywhere in the world. And within them, they have like incredibly powerful technologies that hoover up anything that's interesting that comes along before you know, anybody else gets a, ch- a chance to to play with it yeah or to you know influence and so or, yeah, yeah to influence it so it's it's a it's still you know it, it's intriguing and it's interesting but it's also you know you, you know it's hard to keep up to date with what the hell is going on in the technology sector yes uh, definitely um and you also you, you need to several degrees in various forms of data science and right. computer engineering and um and, and tying back to your um discussion about the charity and, and how do we make that accessible to people that perhaps don't have the same kind of opportunity to access that knowledge at an earlier age. Um yeah. I think it's definitely something that as an industry we need to work on and find find ways to to whether it's simplify or make it more accessible, I don't know. But um, I'd love to see our industry go back to some some basics of just good good you know, use technology because it's there and it's great, but just some good core reasons why that technology matters rather than being so focused on the technology itself. Correct. I mean, you know, technology for technology's sake. Yeah. And, and I mean, you say about blockchain was looking for a problem or you know a question to answer. I I never really believed that because I could see very clearly that. Uh, the distributed ledger was actually very threatening to the traditional uh, broker, okay, and the authority of the of said broker. So for me, you know, that was really that was where I saw that opportunity. Like I did, you know, twenty odd years ago when I was in Marks and Spencers and saw a woman kneeling down and she had a what was then called a Palm Pilot um, in her wow. hand. Wow, that's and definitely she, gone back. And she was literally, you know, like she was, you know, reading barcodes. Mm. And, and I asked her what she was doing. She told me about, oh, it's a trial. You know, they're going to check out whether the, uh, you know, stock levels in store and what's going on in the warehouse can be connected in some way. And I'm just doing this, you know, like, and she was a shop assistant that was on the floor. And I looked at that and I thought the death of field marketing is upon us. <laughs> yep. And that's what what is interesting about when you look at tech and you experience technology and you you know from the perspective of you know knowledge and experience and imagination yep. you can see what you know and that's entrepreneurial yep. right so when we talk about those kids that Lisa and Sarah and the teams at Digi Learning are working with they all have entrepreneurship because most of them are the children of immigrants or the underprivileged and they know how to hustle yeah. And when you can hustle, you can use your imagination to work out what might happen. But you need knowledge of the world to be able to see how that might impact 
on, you know, like I said there about the death of field marketing. Because yeah. probably most of the people who are listening to this podcast <laughs> don't even know what it is. Know what field marketing <laughs> is. Oh, geez, you and I, we should do an old person's podcast. <laughs> old person here. <laughs> Back in the day. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so, uh, continuing with kind of the, uh, the thought around DLT, as we're now going to call it, I've rebranded it. That's a great rebrand, a live rebrand, DLT. Um, a good application is uh, the influence it can have on data privacy. And I think you, you've kind of already pointed that out. Um, and marketing itself is about kind of consumers and their needs and, and how we address those needs. That's, that's fundamentally what, what, what we're trying to achieve. Um, so as we kind of make that shift from the old world of, of you know, the, the Swiss army knife of third party cookies, and they were great, yeah. but they're also rubbish at the same time, we move to this new world, whether it's DLT or other applications of tech, and we yeah. involve first party data and privacy. What do you think, um, what kind of some of the challenges the industry are going to face going through that journey? And if you had you know, an endless supply of money and, and people to make it work, what would you do? What would, what, uh, how would you kind of overcome those issues? Well, I, I mean, I think the first number one issue is Google. Would you please stop extending the <laughs> <laughs> well, Importantly on that, I think the genie's out of the bottle. I think we, whether, they, whether they get rid of it or yes. not, the genie's now, out of the bottle. So. I absolutely think that that's the case. I mean, fundamentally, I mean, I, you know this, uh, um, and I, it's not, you know, I'm not, this is not a boast or anything. It's just I, I'm a massively a, a huge advocate for consumer privacy, and I have been fortunate to sit on the board of the Internet Commission, which has now been acquired by the Ombudsman, um, as well as advise the Home Secretary around online harms regarding the abuse of, of, of you know crime in our space in in the programmatic space to be specific and also the um you know the impact of uh how you know for example facebook uh, and others you know how easy it is to track and, and and trap children in particular and vulnerable people um you know because there's just no there is no privacy you know and that, and that privacy is being abused constantly so you know we're we're in a sort of really and i mean so therefore yes the cookie is part of it and the but the whole area of privacy and the identity and protecting our identities and the uh in my opinion the actual um ethical uh you know impact that and responsibility that organizations you know that are way bigger than governments in fact have the gross national product of you know bigger than most you know a large number if not the majority of countries in the world um you know that it is not the, the the power that exists within those organizations and the information that they have on us um, is so great that we are in this reverse engineering, you know, situation. So it's, if I, you know, if I may be so honest as to say, we can't just keep burying our heads in the sand, Nick Clegg, about what's going on, you know, and saying it's all good because we're nice, good people and, you know, we will do no evil. Um, you know, the evil's already being done by people who are just manipulating, you know, the platforms themselves. So, I think that the, this is why I think Web3 actually is an opportunity for us to reboot. And I think that the cookie-less world is now upon us. I think, you know, there is, but there is a attitude within the industry that as long as I own the ID, then I have the power. And yeah. so we're just replicating the same, you know, in my opinion, you know, sorry, I've sworn already, so I'm not going to ask your permission to be able to swear you know, it's a up model, okay, that actually, on one hand, we say we really care deeply about the consumer and our job, you know, I could have been reading, you know, from my first sales manual, our job in marketing is to inform the consumer about things that they need and that we'll be able to provide them with. That's what advertising does. We're here to do good. And, you know, that uh, that's what we want to do. But the reality is that increasingly we're abusing that, by selling their information and you know wrapping it up in ways which are unethical um not only are they unethical they absolutely you know we don't care what what happens to the people and what if they get ripped off or you know they're just being monetized into the ground you know Uh, 
and they don't have any share of the action. And I admire organizations um, that are trying to, you know, raise awareness amongst consumers about this this data business that is, you know, essentially. But I think they're on a hide into nowhere um, at this moment in time. Now, it may well change um, if in my lifetime. I would like to see it change in my lifetime. But I think that most people, you know, are they just want the service. And I think the trade of, you know, I give you my data and in return you let me play with this stuff is, you know, it's basically now ingrained in the habits of mankind and womankind and humankind and that uh, is where we are, and that's we have to address the reality of the situation. So, given that that is the reality, and the addiction is already there, then I think that it's very, it's it's absolutely vital that in that we f- force regulation, and I think that's the only way that we will see uh, the protection of the consumer, and that's us too, by the way. Yep. Um, will come to fruition. So um, if I had all the money in the world, I would be heavily lobbying government and fund and trying to fund experts like you and people far better than me to be t- explaining to le- the legislators that this is how it actually works. Yep. And, you know, in reality, the, when we had GDPR and it was designed and it was created and all that, people who actually wrote that did not know anything about the industry. <laughs> well, that is, that's vivid. It's as clear as day. Yeah. You know, like we all laughed. You well, know? I, was, I was in Brussels a fair bit during that time and, yeah. and there was a general sense that nobody really knew how the internet worked. No, they didn't. Yeah. And I was actually in a meeting at that time where a guy, they brought, what they thought was really smart was they brought a guy in from Google, okay, and this guy from Google, who was really smart, and he 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 was an engineer, and he had no knowledge or understanding of work of marketing, none whatsoever, zero. Yeah. yeah. You know, and of course that was the thing they were, they thought all well, the engineers are responsible for this. The engineers aren't responsible for that. It is a collect. I mean, this is the way that one thing that you know we can point to in truth is to say that our industry has to be collaborative because as I said, essentially, if it's not collaborative, it doesn't work, yep. okay? Yep. Um, and so collaboration, because of the of the complexity, means that if you are going to actually debate about uh, the, a cookie world and what ID means and what, you know, and the ethical and moral and corporate governance issues that sit around that technology, then you have to have a room where you have people from different backgrounds and expertise from the industry, right, that will make, will, will find consensus. Because <laughs> back to consensus. Yep. That's a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And we, we're almost up on time. So just one, right. one point, final point on that. And then I'm going to ask you the last question, which is uh, the most important one. Um, so just on that, I mean, two things I would say. One is, um, I think, and I'm a consumer and you're a consumer, so we have an opinion, we have a view on this, we have a more informed view, but I think generally consumers are okay with the concept of knowledge about me being used to improve my experience, uh, whether that's a physical experience with how a website runs or whether it's ads or whatever. I think generally people are okay with that and the value exchange that exists there. What they're not okay with is the practices that go on that see that information flowing around unfettered to people that I've got no mm-hmm. idea of. So, um Agree, disagree. I don't know, but but for me, it's about it's it's a big part of that is solving the process, not necessarily the principle. Um, yeah, of, I don't of, disagree with that, but I mean, you know, we could process is fundamental to uh, to the success of of any endeavor, right? Um, right across the board. I'm sorry, but yeah. but the point is that the reason why I'm focused you know, about the principles and why I talked about the ethical or lack of ethical framework around these things is that unless you design a process that incorporates those principles and is aware of those principles and wishes to achieve those principles, then you're just basically designing a process. And that, my friend, is like designing technology (laughs) for the sake of technology. Yeah, okay. I definitely would agree with that. I think that's very fair. And and second point on that, there's, um, I follow someone on Twitter called Jason Kent, who's very knowledgeable about all the um, regulatory processes going against Facebook yep. and Google, etc. And you see the you know, font of knowledge in that respect. Um, but I, I guess the you know, key question there is, do you think it's actually going to make any difference? I think as it, the, 
we have to keep talking about this in public and out loud. If we don't, then no, nothing will happen. It's people like Jason Kent and others who are in the public domain, who are expert, who do make it their business to, you know, to, to talk about this stuff. I mean, look, you know, Carol Cadwallader, right, was, you know, she took Aaron Banks right the way to the yeah. edge. The guy had to write off seven million uh, pounds, right, because he did not want to go to court because he knew what would happen. He would, he had been abusing data and he had been abusing, you know, and the whole kind of nine yards of it, and she would have won. There's no question, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. But the fact is that it's without, you know, Carol cannot be the only person that, you know, that's actually in the market talking about what, you know, what's going on. And also, why are we letting it get to that point? Yeah. You know, why are we letting it get to that point when it is within our power? And I'm again, you know, for some is one of the businesses that is actually addressing this problem and providing solutions that allow companies to operate ethically. So, you know, there is another way, you yeah. know, and it's in. So let's let's let, let's. Let's embrace it. Yeah, let's embrace it. And and embrace it. Absolutely. And I like in fact I work for him, so I wholeheartedly agree with 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 you know the principle of of let's 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 change the narrative, let's change the process, let's change the the principles and it's within our within our uh, capability to do so. We've just gotta get on and and do it, haven't we? Yeah, I mean we're lucky that we have people we have our own Greta Thunbergs, you know. We've got people like Amy Keane, Emma Sexton, you know. That are, and others, you know, within the industry, you know, Harriet Kingaby and the guys at Conscious Advertising Network, you know, there are people talking about this publicly, you know, that there are technologies like, you know, the programmatic technologies like Goodloop that are actually in the space. And more and more, I mean, I, I met, they, they are, there are other varieties available of good good companies and good technology <laughs> that are ethically op- operating in, in a more consumer-oriented way. Yeah. And I think that that's just, these are the examples and, and clients need to be telling their agencies and their partners, we want to work with those guys because they're doing the right thing and we want to do the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. Mary, it's been a delight talking to you. Thank you. Again, your honesty, your knowledge, your experience. Um, I could speak to you for hours and learn every time I do. So thank you very much for taking time. I have one last question for you. Um, so we do this these Identity Architects podcasts fairly regularly. Uh, if we, if you wanted to listen to an Identity Architects podcast, who is it you'd want to listen to? Who should we go and talk to next? I think you should go and talk to Lisa Goodchild, the founder of Digi Learning. Okay, that sounds fantastic. Thank you. Well, tell her I told you that. <laughs> I will. Don't worry. We'll uh, we'll definitely mention you again. Thank you for your time. Um, thank you everybody for listening, um, and uh, look forward to seeing you on the next one. Thanks again to Mary for joining us for a fascinating discussion. It was amazing to hear about how Mary got her start in the industry. And the underlying message of doing better by consumers, especially as it relates to their privacy, was truly inspiring. All that leaves for me to do is to remind you to hit that subscribe button so you know when the next episode of Identity Architects lands. But until then, thanks for listening.